Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, I am John Najarian, and this is Compound Interests. Compound Interests, I get to sit one-on-one -on -one with some of the most interesting and exciting people uh, that are in either finance, celebrities in Hollywood, uh, folks that sing, folks that perform. And of course, uh, to this week's uh, broadcast is with Manny Koshpin. Manny is an entrepreneur extraordinaire, folks. You're not gonna believe the story that you're about to hear because Manny went from absolutely just his family with the love of that family and his father getting them out of Persia into Turkey over into the United States, living in a Datsun station wagon. And then, you know, it, it's like back and forth and back and forth as he uh, basically goes from success to not failure, but then gets knocked down a few pegs. And then another great success. And again, not failure, but he gets knocked down a few pegs. And the guy stays optimistic the whole time. And that'll come through I think in this broadcast, you'll hear what it takes to have that entrepreneurial spirit when you get knocked around and how you can't quit. You've got to have goals. You got to set time aside for yourself, not just for those goals. Um, and I think Manny does a great job explaining his journey and I think motivating all of us to be better than we were prior to hearing this story. So give it a listen. Manny Kushpin. I follow Manny on um, Instagram and along with his million plus followers. And I see, you know, this crazy lifestyle. But as you see behind him, folks, those aren't, that's not a poster. And, you know, <laughs> this dude is in his garage, which we could all eat off of the floor of that garage, Manny. Um, I know, I feel like I know it because I see you in there all the time. I know how passionate you are about your cars, and I would be too, quite frankly. I mean, my cars, Manny, are both trucks, um, but I love cars too, uh, except here in, uh, oh, there go my, my dogs are going nuts because they hear me talking about cars. Um, my cars, I get flats in them all the time. Um, even with the run flat tires and things, you know, I had Jaguars, I had Mercedes, I had McLarens. The problem, Manny, is I live in Chicago. We've got potholes everywhere. That's so not Beverly Hills. Yeah. Yeah, it's not Beverly Hills. You're sitting there driving on what looks like a racetrack, <laughs> you know, where it's smooth and nice, except maybe where the where the uh uh protesters have been. Everything is great. Yeah, well, luckily I live in Orange County, so I don't have to deal with that mess, you know, in in Ro on Rodeau Drive and Beverly Hills. But yeah, well, I don't blame you. Thanks for the but, compliments, John. Thank you, folks. Um, let me let Manny talk a little bit because, like I say, I know you're going to love this story. I mean, as most of you know, I'm half Armenian and half Swedish, and I meet this crazy Iranian guy out at Salt, which is Anthony Scaramucci's. Um, alternative asset conference and immediately I recognize him and as I say this is a guy that's inspiring so 
Um, I mean, my story, Manny, is my dad's a doctor and I was lucky to grow up not so much in a privileged, a high privileged um, upbringing, but my dad's a doctor, he was interning, so he didn't have any money really when he was interning um, and then doing these surgical residencies and all the rest. But your story is far more interesting because you're a guy who came to this country literally with nothing. I mean, except the love of your family. And, you know, that means almost everything. But it's not the same as somebody that started with everything that started on third base. You're a guy that got here and had to grind it out. So tell us a little bit about living in a car. And, you know, uh, you know, I, like I say, I know the story, but I want the listeners to hear the story about how much your father had to sacrifice your father and mother to get you to here. Yes, well, thank you, John, for the introduction. Um, well, I'm from Iran and my dad has seven brothers, uh, which four of them passed away or got significantly injured from the war, from Iran and Iraq war. And my dad, you know, always, I was his favorite son. I have three other siblings. I have a brother and two sisters. But I was always his favorite. And two weeks before my 14th birthday, which I would have become illegal to ex exit the country because I have to submit to the army. Believe it or not, they, they draft me at 14. And uh, having seen his brother, you know, died and got injured, he decided two weeks before my 14th birthday to just bolt and left the house keys and the store keys to his brother. And with a little over $2,000 left to Turkey. We all left to Turkey, six of us. And he was able to uh, get a visa. We came to America uh, within a month and a half. So we were in Turkey for a month and a half. And then uh, when we arrived here, he was promised a job by a friend that owned a bunch of gas stations to pump gas at a full service. But when we landed at LAX, he picked us up, took him you know, to his house in Newport Beach. And I guess the wife and had no idea six people are moving in. <laughs> so the night we hear them fighting in the kitchen. We're all in one bedroom, you know, one of their bedrooms. And uh, after two nights, he walked in and says, I'm so sorry, I have to ask you guys to leave. You know, this is gonna cause me divorce, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, um, we checked into a motel in Costa Mesa. And within a few days, my dad called the guy back, says, look, I'm gonna be running out of money. I you, I counted on this job. Not only you didn't give me the job, you kicked me out of your house. And uh, he suggested, you know, buying one of these cars, he sells off of his gas station a lot to kind of temporarily move into a car. <laughs> so it was just desperate times calls for desperate measures. Um, and my sister at the time was six months old. So it was, you can imagine the stress my mother was going on there. And, and of course I'm getting the uh, majority of the pressure because I know everybody's sacrificing because of me, right? Long story short, we moved to a 1972 Datsun station wagon, 510 wagon. Um, for a little over a month, my dad was able to obtain a job and uh, get, a, you know, within two weeks, use the paycheck to check into a two-bedroom apartment in Costa Mesa. And uh, those periods were pretty rough and somehow I don't have a lot of memory from it because I think subconsciously I want to block it because it was just a lot of suffering. You know, I just, I remember eating bananas every day and we used to park in the Stater Brothers parking lot, it's a grocery store parking lot. 
and we had to move the car every time security came by. <laughs> but we took bananas because it was the cheapest source of food. Um, but I took all that, uh, you know, uh, desperation, suffering into motivation to succeed. And I wanted to uh, be financially free um, and pay, you know, pay back my parents for all the suffering they did. So I was very eager to make money. So my first job at age 14, once we moved into the two-bedroom apartment, I realized every time I take out the trash, there is stuff people leave by the trash can that's fairly in good shape, you know. Uh, sometimes a toaster, you know, TV, radio, sometimes even a dining table with four chairs. And I told my brother, I says, hey, this looks good. So that's how we kind of furnished our apartment. <laughs> and after a while, I keep bringing back and then the patio of an apartment was full, full of stuff. And uh, a block away was Orange Coast College, which we used to go to the swap in on weekends to buy stuff for the house, me and my mom. And then I realized, hey, I got all this stuff I've been taking from the dumpsters. We can bring it, haul it across the street and sell it. So for two years, that was my first job, taking stuff people left by dumpsters and sell them at the swap meet. And was making, you know, 100 bucks or 50, 100 bucks a week, which was a lot of money when you don't have any money, right? Mm -hmm. And then at age 16, when I was legally authorized to work in the U.S., I got my first job at Kmart, cleaning mopping the stockroom floors, collecting shopping carts. But I knew that was always a stepping stone. My dream was, you know, to own a, a sports car, a big mansion, you know, and oh, make sure my dad and mom are retired, whatever, you know. And so I was always a stepping stone. Um, I get the Sunday's news, newspaper, even though I was uh, working at Kmart, I was looking at the job opportunity section for a better, you know, higher stepping stone. Finally found a company that was, uh, forgot the name, I think it was WWI, Worldwide Wholesale Industry, something like that. They sold door-to-door -door, door -door product like knife sets, nuts, candies, whatever. It was a multi-level marketing. So it, it said you can earn 500 bucks a week. At the time, I was making 100 bucks a week at, at Kmart. And I'm like, wow, that's five times more than you know I'm making now. So I called them and sure enough, you know, they said, yep, you, we give you these products. You get your own team, whatever they sell, you get this much percentage, it was an MLM. Um, after three months, I was a top salesman at the company. Uh, and that was at the time selling nuts, pistachios, cashews, trail mix, jujubes, all kinds of small eight ounce bags of nuts and candy. So three months into it, I'm a top salesman. I'm shopping with my dad at Price Club. And I do a quick math on the candy aisle and nut aisle. I'm like, wait a minute. These guys are selling me half a pound of jujubes you know, for $2.50. And I can buy the whole pound uh, for $2.50. That's like more than double. So I, and I already had my sales routes, customers, and I already knew you know, who's buying. Every week I had you know, certain routes I would take. So I went home, I did some more math, um, and then I told my dad, I think I'm gonna open my own business. I was 18 at the time. <laughs> I opened my own business. I went to secure a small little office in Stanton, California, and the landlord says, oh, you know, we need you to you know, have a co-signer. You don't have any experience, you're 18 years old. So my dad co-signed for me. I opened a small little warehouse with an office in the front, and that was my first business at 18. It was called Unlimited Wholesale Products. So I went to a price club, picked up two pallets of candies, jujubes, trail mix. I bought a little sealer 
and some eight inch uh, polyester bags. And my dad printed the labels for me off his PC from Radio Shack. <laughs> and, <laughs> the business. And, and I had the same customers. Now I was making more than double because my cost of goods went down, you know, by 50%. I had five employees within eight months and I was making, you know, 10,000 a month, 5,000, 8,000, 10,000 a month, some months better than others. And then until I, one day I sold three bags of nuts to a guy while waiting for my hamburger. And he turned out to be a health inspector who worked for Orange County Health Department. And he didn't say nothing, of course, but he bought the three bags for 10 bucks. And then he was at my doorsteps the next morning at 8 a.m. Oh. older. <laughs> he told me that, hey, every time you repackage food in the U.S., you got to be permit. You have to have a health permit. Your facility has really, I had no idea. I mean, I was still working on, uh, working on my English, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so he gave me the requirement. And till then, he tagged me. He says, you got to close down. I'm shutting you down. So I took the binder home, me and my dad looked at it. I'm like, there is no way we can make this, uh, you know, facility compliance. I mean, it doesn't even meet 90% of what's in this binder. So I closed my business down. Um, I had 20 some thousand dollars saved. Uh, a, a lady that was my dad's friend that sold gas stations. Ironically, we go back to gas stations again. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Persian, maybe <laughs> Uh, she said, you know, with 20,000, I can buy you a gas station. You can get an SBA loan, 90%. And, you know, there are a lot of gas stations are going through the modernization of the pumps. Back then it was mechanical. They were getting uh, remodeled. And the oil companies used to pay for them. So the minute they picked your location to be modernized, you would triple your value, right? She said this particular mobile gas station off of Crenshaw 405 freeway, um, it's got a very high chance of being picked by oil, mobile oil company. So we went to escrow, I think 170,000 or so was the purchase price for this gas station. This was 1990. I was uh, 19 years old. I put my 20 grand with this in escrow. I applied for my SBA loan. I went to Rancho Cucamonga where for two weeks I got trained from mobile gas station to become a mobile dealer. I still have the plaque, so I'm a mobile dealer. Had to measure the tanks, do the snack shop, all kinds of stuff, right? It was 3,500 bucks. So I got the, I became certified mobile dealer, but the guy that was doing my SBA loan turned out to be a con artist. He took all my money. Yep, never heard from him and I'm out of money and uh, tried to extend the escrow, trying to figure out what's going on. And the seller at the time said, I'm not gonna extend. Basically I was back to zero. I lost all my money and I got into a little bit of depression and uh, so I called one of my best uh, you know, customers when I was selling nuts. It was a manager of a tire shop in Montebello, California, Winston Tires back then. I called Ruben, I said, Ruben, I lost everything. The gas station didn't happen. Him and I had become friends. He goes, come over, I'll give you a job as an assistant manager. So I went back to work collecting paycheck you know, <laughs> at 21. And as I see people coming with their Porsche and Ferraris to Winston Tire to get tires done, and I was upselling brakes and all kinds of stuff, right? <laughs> Brake pads. And I realized, you know, these guys are all have great cars. And I would talk to them while they're waiting. I'm like, what do you do for a living? Nine out of 10 was either mortgage company or real estate, right? <laughs> so I, one guy, I told him, hey, uh, you know, I would love to, you know, uh, work for you if, you if you're hiring. He goes, just so happens, I love your personality. So he hired me as a loan officer 
This is uh, 1992. And I worked for him for about six months. Um, I was one of his best pro loan processors. And then I realized, hey, there's a lot of money to be made in mortgage company, right? Mortgage brokering, brokering out loans. And I got my license and I partnered up with a broker and opened my own mortgage company in 1993. And I made 290,000 the first year in my, so that was my first big break, uh, owning my own mortgage company. And I was 22 or 23 at the time. Long story short, Greenspan pumped the rates up in April of 1994, I think it was. And I had 120 refinances. And back then we wouldn't lock the rates until we're ready for loan docs because the shorter the term, the bigger premium kickback the banks give you. And I was making like 30, 40,000 a month. I bought a, a convertible Mercedes, I bought a house, I had a Lexus. So I was living the life right? <laughs> until the rates went up. And next FOM, FOMC meeting again went up another quarter. All the refis were dead. So I had to close down the mortgage company. I had a couple of hundred thousand dollars saved and I realized, hey, 99 cent stores are doing great. And why not, why not open a 79 cent store? So it was called 79 <laughs> plus. <laughs> so I opened the first 79 cents plus store in Santana in 1994 uh, or 95. It was 10,000 square feet. It did great, you know, because it was, you have some teaser items, VO5 shampoo, Dove soap for 79 cents. So you lose some on those leading items, but they're teasers, you know, you bring people in. It was doing great. We did second location, much bigger in, in Stanton, California. And then we decided, hey, why not uh, make it into a supermarket? Uh, because it was in Santa Ana, it, it was just very lucrative to have produce and meat. Uh, so we converted to a supermarket in 96. At this time, we're making 30, 40,000. This is the same broker that um, I opened my mortgage company. I brought them into the discount store as well. I'm like, hey, we're doing good together. Why not keep doing it? You know? mm -hmm. um, long story short, Food for Less is a chain of supermarkets that uh, in California, they opened right next to us in Santa Ana where it was our you know, leading store. And we went from their grand opening store uh, date, we went, sales went down 50%, John. Oh. So that was like, basically you wake up and you get hit, you know, by two by four. <laughs> and, um, you know, how can you compete with a chain of 40 supermarkets? You can't. They're buying in bulk, tomatoes, bananas, everything. They buy much cheaper. Um, so that was a second fail for me, if you want to call it. Within a year, um, I was upside down on everything. I sold my house. I sold my two cars. I was renting a car. And I owed 180 to 200,000 on my credit cards at 20% interest. I didn't want to file bankruptcy. Everybody told me to file bankruptcy. And by, by the way, my partner left. He says, hey, we're not making money. You know, you, you, know, you can have it. And I, I think I bought his share for $15,000, uh, his 50% share in the supermarket. So long story short, I'm nearly bankrupt. I'm upside down. I have a negative net worth. But I told myself, I'm not going to give up. <laughs> Because if I file bankruptcy, I'm dead. You know, this country is built on credit, right? I got to somehow exit out of this thing. So I figured, hey, I'm losing money anyway in the supermarket. Why not just lose more money and get the sales up? And then I <laughs> right? <laughs> so I start running full page ads in La Opinion, which is a main Mexican newspaper. And it was costly. And then I put Mexican bands in the parking lot, free tacos. 
So you, you spend 25 bucks, you get a free taco, you know, two tacos. So I start doing coupons and then I drop the prices, ridiculous price, like tomato for five cents a pound. Food for less next to me was like at 25 cents a pound. And I advertised those at a major loss on the full page ad. So next, you know, my sales tripled within two months. And I was able to sell the uh, supermarket for 185,000 plus inventory. And so after I paid the vendors, uh, I was still negative net worth. I had $181,000 check from escrow and I owe 200 of my credit cards. So this is the part you're gonna like. I <laughs> took that money, this is December, 1998. I took that money and opened the E-Trade account. <laughs> <laughs> All my friends are making money. They're buying Brocade Communications, CMGI, AOL, E-Trade. Every three months they announce earnings, three for one, a stock split. You remember those days? Oh yeah. <laughs> so I put uh, the 180,000, all of it in an account. And I start buying options and a stocks on AOL, E-Trade, Brocade Communications, CMGI, all the high flyers. And I, by September 1999, I tripled the money at close to 700 grand. I took the money out. I left $80,000 in there. All my friends told me, you're an idiot. You're crazy. If you keep it, it's going to be multi-million, millions and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, I've got my ass handed to me twice already <laughs> since I came here. This is too good to be true. I want to just, if it's going to go, if, if it's going to keep going skyrocketing, I can start with this 80000 again, right? Just leave it in there. So I took uh, some money off the table, most of it. And during this whole time when I had the supermarket, my landlord was a older Jewish gentleman that owned very big portfolio of real estate. And he saw me struggle for two years and he really liked me. He goes, when you get out of the supermarket business, you sell it or you close it down, come see me. I'd love to help you get in real estate because you remind me of me when I was young. Mm -hmm. His name was Mr. Dave Williams. Long story short, when I uh, took the money out of the stock market, the first person I called was Mr. Dave Williams. I said, Mr. Williams, I'm ready. So he sent me his top two brokers that sourced deals for him. And they brought me three properties. I liked one because it was a distressed deal. It was a shopping center in Whittier. Seller was old. He had price reductions and twice. And, uh, and I couldn't uh, finance it because I don't have good tax returns because I was losing money. So he carried for me. I put $200,000 down on a shopping center. He carried a note. And then I bought, with the balance of the money, I bought two other homes that were REO bank owned. And I started, that's how I started my real estate career. And I turned that into, you know, a $130 million real estate portfolio by 2007. So from 1999 to 2007, eight years I turned to $130 million. I sold it in July of 2007. I sold my entire portfolio, most of it, uh, in Texas for a million, one million a square feet, seven high-rise buildings. I sold for 130 million, and I invested in industrial buildings because they weathered the recession better. Right, tenants are more vested interest in the space, light manufacturing. They're not easy to get up and go with their equipment. Right, office building, they get up and go. So I mitigated my risk of going into a recession because I knew everything's cyclical. I had seen two recessions previously. So I bought industrial, that's what saved my butt. And I bought three food lion centers in North Carolina. 80% uh, of the center was food lion because like groceries are good hedge in recession too. People gotta eat, right? As long as the operator has a good balance sheet. Long story short, I've flipped over eight, eight, nine hundred million dollars worth of real estate and 
having passion for cars, I've been fortunate to, you know, uh, have a great collection of cars over the years. And I'm waiting for the next uh, buying opportunity, which is coming <laughs> in real estate. Huh. Once all the, uh, you know, all the ban on evictions gets lifted and Fannie Freddie Mac freeze of 12 months, you know, the whole game that uh, feds, you know, kind of uh, push the panic button on everything in March, rightfully so, because it would have been disaster, you know, if they hadn't acted and pumped liquidity so quickly. But, uh, but yeah, it's been fun. You know, now I'm trying to teach everybody about real estate, 90% timing, 10% is what you're doing, right? I mean, right. if you property in 2007, it would take you 10 years to get your equity back. But if you threw a dart in any metropolitan city in 2011, you land on any property in metro city, you double your money without doing a thing. So timing is very important. Right. So here we are. I left probably 20 things out of there. I've uh, sold. No, I, I, I mean, sold LA, LA Times. <laughs> I work for LA Times. I mean, I my God. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure that the listeners have the same appreciation um, quickly that I had when I met you. And that is, um, look at what this guy did, folks. You know, uh, goes from living in a car to um, making money selling, you know, with this multi-level marketing, then figures out that the multi-level marketing guys are kind of ripping him off. I mean, you know, it's their business, I get it. But, you know, they're marking it up too much. So he goes and he starts buying the candy directly as best he can from that side, runs that business all the way up, gets into the supermarket business, runs that one up. I mean, Manny, it's, it's amazing. I, virtually everything you've touched, you've been able to turn at one point or another into gold. I mean, yeah. it really is amazing. And you've learned the lessons too, though. You've yeah. learned about leverage, um, both from the options and from the uh, um, real estate side of things, you know, and you also know that it's an awful lot about entry. You say 90%. I'm not disagreeing with you. Um, it's a high degree of success that I have, my brother Pete has, is when do you get in and when do you get out? Yep. Timing wow. is not everything, but it's, you know, 80% or yeah. 90%, as you say, yeah. And then showing up, you know, yeah. because you got to show up. Um, yeah, yeah. You gotta, how many you people? Able, you need to pull that trigger. Yeah. Yep. How many people didn't show up in April? You know, March and April, when the market's tanking, the, the stock market, all these people, Manny, that always say the same sorts of things that you did, except you were very disciplined about saying, John, you know, I, I in 2010, not so great, but in 2011, I could throw a dart and whatever I hit, you know, doubles and so forth. I mean, when, when you're looking around at best opportunities, uh, it does come down to timing. And uh, you have to have the guts to do it, though, which you've had in several examples that you cited, because um, we always hear, Manny, um, oh, I like this stock, but I like it at 155, not at 150 or whatever. You know, uh, I, I'm gonna wait till it breaks out and then I'll buy it. Or uh, it just needs to come down two more dollars and then I'll load the boat on this one. And they miss the whole move. I guarantee you there's a lot of folks that did exactly that in the stock market and missed it in yeah. April 
May, June. They still couldn't believe in June, and they probably shorted it. Yeah. And for a couple of days, yeah. they might have been right. But then the rest of the time, they just missed it. Yeah, and unfortunately, they'll come right over the top when, when it's, you know, right when the market's extended, you know. But right. you know, I, think, I, I like to tell people I'm a contrarian. And, you know, if, you know, 90% of people typically lose money, you know, in most of ventures and stocks and what have you, if you're doing the opposite, you have a better chance, better odds. You know? Yeah. When people well, are buying, you know, I like to sell. And when they're selling, I like to buy. And uh, a good example was, you know, I'm referring mostly to real estate. I don't, I'm not that active on stocks. I mean, I have some money in my stock account, a few hundred thousand dollars that I flirt around with. But I like to say I flirt with stocks, but I go to bed with real estate, you know, because <laughs> I know I know who I'm sleeping with, you know. With yeah. stocks, you got to really be in the game to know who, who what's going on, you know. And you're an expert at that, you know. Well, but thank you, but it's it is challenging all the time, Manny. Believe me. Um, before I get to the cars, I want to get to a few of the rules that you set because I loved in your videos and in your mentoring, because, you know, he's a millionaire mentor, folks. I mean, Manny actually teaches a lot of what he described to us just in the last few minutes. And you're, I think both of us have the same first set of uh, rules, which is set goals. That you've got to set goals for yourself. Um, and you've got to, uh, you know, adjust with what the market's giving you. Because I can't say, well, my goal is to take, you know, Apple from this to this. I got to go with what the market's giving me. You got to do the same with real estate. I know you want to take it from $20 a foot to 30 and $35 a foot. But, you know, it's what the market will bear and, you know, leverage and all the rest. So if yeah. you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about setting goals. Sure. Well, you know, a lot of people are waiting for a great opportunity and they never do anything. They're just waiting, right? And I tell people, hey, start with what's in front of you. You know, for me, it was Kmart. I applied for three places. Kmart said, okay, we'll hire you. I didn't wait around for a triple the rate, you know, a paying job. I just took, I think my, it was $13.15 an hour, my first job back in 1986. Mm -hmm. Hey, it's nothing I could get rich off of, but it was a, it was a start, right? So take action, whatever's in front of you, but with the mindset that you're looking actively for a higher stepping stone for the next better opportunity. So that's number one. Number two, have a vision uh, board. You know, I had my vision board. I wrote when I was young, uh, you know, it was a, a big mansion. I wanted to have, you know, three car garage. <laughs> I have a much bigger garage now. <laughs> so always have, you know, a, setting goals is kind of like a roadmap. You know, you can't go from here to New York with your headlights off, right? You got to have some vision, even if it's 10 feet in front of you. So short-term goals are those 10 feet visibility. Long-term goals are, you know, your 10, 15, 20-year vision. And, but having those and constantly writing your goals every week, every day, and crossing them off, being productive is extremely critical to becoming successful. Otherwise, also, yeah. I, I know you're big on this, Manny, and I, like I say, uh, you got to follow him on Instagram, folks, and check this out. Uh, but uh, um, you're also big about time management, and yeah. so am I, because I know, Manny, that if I don't get up, you know, before the sun and start getting my workout in, that I'll find an excuse not to do it. 100%. And yet, 
I see you doing it all the time. I see you, you know, posting videos, whether you're boxing or whether you're lifting or whether you're doing pull-ups, you know, all of that stuff. Um, but it's, it's, you've got to have good time management. Um, and for some people, maybe you can't work out first thing in the morning. I get it, but you got to manage your time so that you can fit all of this stuff in to hit, to hit these goals. Right, Manny? hundred percent. And you know, uh, probably the biggest challenge is, you know, managing your time, especially with, when you have two kids and, you know, so it's critical. You get up early to get a head start. You know, I get up usually anywhere between four and five a.m. and I respond to all my emails, uh, emails, and issues that uh, for, are on table for that week. I have properties in four different states. You know, a few hundred uh, tenants. So there is always issues, right? And if it's very urgent, I flag it so I can read it. You know, when I wake up the next day. So I get a two, two to three hours head start, and then I work out at 7 a.m., uh, 7.15 to be exact, like clockwork. And exercising, I would say, is an absolute must for everybody because you're not trying to be a bodybuilder, but it's for mind con conditioning, you know, to keep mm -hmm. your mind sharp, especially when we get older. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's super, super key to keep you uh, motivated as well because, you know, it just, when you see improvements in your body, gives you more confidence and when I came here I was a skinny little boy but you know my best investments were two dumbbells I bought for 50 cents at the swap meet and I used to have those in the patio of our apartment I used to you know work out with those two dumbbells every day so <laughs> so uh, exercise is super key you know to kind of build your confidence and a lot of people obviously naturally get depressed when you have setbacks in life but you got to think of yourself as a warrior, you know, right? Work with your body, crush your goals and even do bigger goals. Never give up. That's you know, what I tell people. Yeah. Right. Well, and this goes to another of the things that I hear you talk about a lot, Manny, which is, um, you know, staying positive. I'm sure that first one, when that guy shut you down, that health inspector, you yeah. know, when he shuts you down, that's heartbreaking, you know, that's difficult. And then, when that guy uh, ripped you off, you know, from the small business loans. And, you know, none of us are going to be positive about that, but you can't let it linger. In other words, you know, but yeah, uh, the, the, the best people around, you know, whether it's, it's you in real estate, whether it's Warren Buffett in stocks, um, things happen that you didn't see. And all of a sudden you got to react to it. And you're not going to be happy when it doesn't work. I guarantee you. Warren Buffett was pissed when he had to sell those airlines down right. as hard as he had to sell them. I guarantee he was pissed when he had to sell out of uh, IBM, but it's his discipline. And then I'm sure he's like, but I have Apple. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've got something to be happy about. And no matter what he lost in AOL, I'm sorry, in American Airlines or United Airlines or Southwest, no matter what he lost, he made, he made it 20 times over in Apple. But if he would have got those blinders on where he's just in a funk and he can't do anything, he just, I oh, just liquidate everything. I can't take this anymore. You know, screw this. Well, what will the, what will all your fans say? I oh, screw them too. I don't care. Those fans motivate him just like your fans, Manny. You know, when you've got, you know, uh, 
10,000 likes, 100,000 likes when you're posting this stuff on Instagram. Those are your fans. They're living through your success. Yeah. Um, and that must motivate you too. So you've got to stay positive, right? Absolutely. I mean, I love, you know, uh, positive energy is contagious, you know. Mm -hmm. Even sometimes you, you know, uh, make somebody feel good and you see their reaction makes you feel good, you know. Yep. And I love uh, spreading positive energy. The whole point is, hey, setbacks happen. Open your option book and see what's your option. Like mm -hmm. I have many times. Um, like when I lost the money with the nut business, um, you know, or the gas station business, you know, the, the long, long guy defrauded me. I opened my phone book and I went through everybody that I had dropped down with their phone number and I said, okay, what can this guy do for me? So I called Ruben. I got to his name. I'm like, okay, Ruben is the manager of Winston Tires. He really liked me. He bought a lot of nuts from me. Let me give him a call. <laughs> and he hired me. So uh, always just look at what's your options? What's your next option? Instead of just sitting down and being depressed and doing nothing about it, because guess what? It's going to happen to you again. And, right. And you know, that's just the way life works. So. Now, what about this adding value? Because when you say this, um, I mean, I get it as to how you can add value in different investments we make and things like that, or even just friendships, how you can add value and be a better friend and things. But how do you mean it when you say always add value? Yeah, well, I'm mostly referring to properties when I say add value, but that goes, you know, with anything in life that you associate yourself with or touch. Um, I mean, people get married because they feel they're adding value to each other, right? They mm -hmm. make each other feel good. Maybe it's a, you know, career move that they can support each other or they want to form a family and hey, they need both each other to make a baby. <laughs> you know, um, I look at that in terms of properties. I look for properties where I can add value. What does that mean? That means it's a property I can repurpose for a different use, get a big premium on the resale value, or um, it's been uh, grossly mismanaged, I can improve the management, leasing, or it has very high operating expenses, which many, many do that are run by institutional uh, REITs and are reduced to operating expenses. And that gives me higher net operating income and higher value and flip it. So I look at listings on the market or properties that come through my deal flow to see which ones are value add, you know, opportunities for me. And that's how I've made most of my money in real estate. It's never been parking my money, wait for market to go up. That's, you know, that's a speculation. Yeah. Well, I probably do too much of that. Um, <laughs> let's let's talk about the, the, the sexy stuff behind you. Um, yeah. You know, let's talk about that black and white one back there, those Bugattis, or that blue and white one back there. Yeah, um, so blue and white one is a 2006 Bugatti Veyron, and it's probably it's my cheapest Bugatti. Um, the, it's the first one that broke the speed record back in 06. Uh, the one in the front is my most expensive Bugatti. It's the one I commissioned Hermes to fly to the factory, uh, in a Bugatti factory to uh, collaborate with Bugatti. And it has a one-off design seat. Uh, of course, the grill uh, is a one-off. It says H for Hermes. And the entire interior was all hand-stitched and uh, leather at the factory at Hermes and it's the only one of one uh, only one in the world that Hermes has actually designed the seats the dash 
and the center console and also the grills. So it's pretty unique and it took me three years, uh, actually four years to get the car, three years of designing back and forth. I had to fly to, I had to uh, fly to Hermes factory twice. And, but it's my pride of ownership because, you know, it's like uh, having a baby takes nine months to be born. These cars, some of them three years, <laughs> but when it's born and completed and finished, you look at it, you touch it, all the, the whole journey, you know, you, you love the journey. It, it's a process I love. And these to me are, you know, not only uh, investments, but also, you know, uh, like art pieces, you know, people spend millions on Picasso. I spend millions on Bugattis or other cars that I'd like to commission one off one. Sure. Well, and folks, uh, uh, if you're listening to us and not seeing it, then uh, shame on you. You need to go, you, you need to go home and pull this up on YouTube. Um, but uh, the, these are some of his best investments too, folks. A lot of people, Manny, because we have a lot of clients on our wealth management side that collect things like Porsches. And we've got a guy that's got 60 Porsches and he's got them like on a turntable in this garage where, you know. A rotisserie chicken. Yeah, <laughs> just like a rotisserie chicken. And uh, he's got over 60 of them. He sells them once in a while. Um, but, and I'm, I know at the right price, even you would sell, even that white one, uh, the Hermes, even though, like you said, that was a labor of love, but still, at some price, they're not your kids. No, you know, at, no at the I, right price, I always say everything's for sale except my two kids and my wife. Yep, I'm, I'm the same. Um, at the right price, uh, I would sell any of the stuff that we have because uh, you know it's just stuff, um, as much as I love it. And I used to collect old muscle cars, like you know the ones in Fast and Furious, those kind. And they just got, you know, they didn't appreciate like those many, but they went up from like, you know, 30 grand, 50 grand when I bought them to a quarter of a million. And you're sitting there going, wow, this is crazy. You know, I can't believe people are paying this much for these cars. Sold, sold, sold. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, there's the asset gathers its value by its scarcity. The fact that there's only one of those Bugattis, that white one there, that Hermes, that was designed by Manny and the folks at Hermes, um, that means it's a very special vehicle. It has a lot of value. And yeah. somebody who doesn't want to wait three or four years um, to get that, just like somebody when they order a G6, um, they sit there and say, okay, you want the G6? Two and a half years. Yeah. And that's why people call up the guy who's number one in line and say, how much will you sell me your spot for? Yeah. You know, so I know guys, we have clients, Manny, that just put in money for G5s, G6, G650s, whatever. And they intend on taking possession of the jet, but they're more than willing if somebody calls up and says, hey, I got somebody who will pay 2 million over or pay 15 million over what you're into this thing for, which on a leveraged basis, is an incredible return because you didn't put 50 million down to get that jet. Um, you know, you only put a couple million down and somebody's willing to give you 15 on top of that just wow. to take your spot in line. Sold. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> <laughs> now I think you're in the right business. Now, another quick question, Manny, about uh, 
I know you love cigars. When I'm out there with you next time, I've got some cigars that this guy in Cuba makes that are unbelievable. Best cigar I've ever had. I know you like the Cohibas and many of these others. This is the next level. You'll love it. And I'll bring it next time I see you either at Salt or out in LA or wherever we can get together. We'd love but, to. Um, when you're uh, looking at Manny's wrist, folks, uh, when he's doing his Instagram thing, he's got some watches. I wear big watches. This guy's got some killer watches, too. Uh, I only have a few. I think I have four or five watches. These the AP I wear every day. Uh-huh. Uh, a little heavy, but I have a few APs, some Cartiers and Bulgari's, old school stuff, you know, <laughs> Rolex, but... I, you know, I'm not a big watch collector, um, but, you know, once in a while, I treat myself, you know. Yeah, well, and that's the difference, too, is that I think, you know, without even saying it, Manny, we both know that, yeah, certain watches can appreciate, you know, your rose, rose gold AP, maybe, and things like that, and even some of the Rolexes, but for the most part, they don't appreciate, like, those things sitting behind you uh, oh. back there. I mean, you know, I'm excited because I, my first Hermes car was the Pagani in 2016, which is back there. You can't really see it. I wish I could, but it's my, uh, that's all right. Yeah. So, and then my second car was the Bugatti. And then now I have a third car that it's going to be delivered in a couple of months. I flew Hermes team to McLaren in Woking, England, and they've designed it. It's taken two years, but it's finally over and it's getting its final touches on the car and that's going to be the three-seater mclaren it's the re uh, replacement of the f1 you know the mclaren f1 that they sell for 20 some million bucks and they're only making 106 and mine's the only one that's hermes edition with one-off engine cover all with edge emblem and interior is all one-off so similar to what i did with the bugatti i done with the mclaren that's probably going to be my most expensive car and that's the most exciting car as well because you'd be sitting in the center of the street. It's a center seat driver and does 250 uh, miles an hour plus. So imagine that. <laughs> I think I saw you, uh, uh, I think I saw a video of you. It was like a, not not yours, but the one that they showed you, uh, I think you were, you came up to it and I think it was like a deep blue or, yeah. or yeah, something like that. Uh, it's called Abyss Blue, which is the Hermes color. And the interior, they're using uh, aged leather, brown leather. Uh, it's kind of like the old horse saddles they used to make 100 years ago. So it's kind of bringing modern and vintage together. Um, it's going to be neat. Uh, I, you know, when you have Hermes, a company, company that's been around for 180 years plus, uh, you know, uh, decides to work with you, you don't have that much options of dictating what you want. You know, they're very adamant about what they're gonna put their, you know, their name on. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so I kind of give up on uh, directing them on colors. They picked blue and uh, the inside, they wanna do vintage. So we'll see what happens, you know, when it comes. <laughs> it's like a little box of chocolate when it comes, you don't know what you get. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Like Forrest Gump said, life yeah. is like a box of chocolates. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Manny, it's, it's a pleasure. Um, I, I look forward to uh, seeing you again face-to-face. -face. I'm sorry that SALT didn't happen this year. They had to do it virtually, of course, our friend yeah. Scaramucci. 
Um, but I look forward to seeing you out in LA. Um, I, I think it'll be uh, uh, not too long before we get together again. And I, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing the stories with us today. So thank and you. It was my pleasure, John. And make sure you keep those cigars in a nice humidifier so we can smoke them. I will. <laughs> I will. Because I know you've got that special place, you know, just your cigar room. Yes, you know, Cubano room. We'll go to Cubano room, my cigar oh. lounge on the water in Newport Beach. That sounds like the place we need to do it. So we'll do that. Thank great, you, Manny. Great, great talking to you, my friend. Okay. I appreciate it, sir. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.